Good morning. It is Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Since this is a holiday program, the second part of this will be pre-recorded. But um, I hope you stay tuned. We'll be talking to Timothy Gordon, the author of Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Um, Fascinating interview. I hope you all stick around for that. But first, as always, I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn, Bryan College Station. And also welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena, Waco. And also... Our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. And Thaddeus is off this morning, so I am being kept under control by our (laughs) general manager, Dennis Maka. Dennis, how are you this morning? I'm doing my best to to keep you under control. I'm just trying to keep all the knobs under control because this is not my usual position lately. I'm very happy to to be behind the electronics and uh, just playing with the, the toys here in the studio. It's great. But it's nice to have you here every once in a while just to keep in touch and see how things are going. Yes, things are going very well for our family, for our Red Sea Catholic Radio family. Just beautiful, uh, calm summer. You know, we were just talking about the the weather not being too hot, not too dry. It's just been a real nice, um, nice summer. Yes, uh, feels kind of strange for Texas to be talking about this kind of weather in July. Yes. Speaking, we'll take it. Oh, yes. Speaking of July, tomorrow is July 4th, Independence Day. Any plans? Our family is going to participate in one of the things we're actually going to announce, and that's the St. Mary's 4th of July picnic here at Research Park in College Station. And uh, they've got a uh, picnic going on. It's a potluck. Do you want to say more about it? Yes. Uh, it's a 4th of July potluck picnic at Research Park. Uh, starting at 6.30 p.m., hosted by the Aggie Knights of Columbus. Uh, barbecue burgers and hot dogs will be provided by the Knights. Desserts and sides are potluck, so if there's some specialty that you have and you're going out there, bring it out with you and let people share in it. Apple pie's American, right? So I might bring oh. our apple. I have a sour cream apple pie that's actually pretty good. Sounds wonderful. It I'll is. be happy to taste test it this afternoon <laughs> just to give you feedback. I'll give you a pie of your own. <laughs> Uh, please bring lawn chairs and games uh, after the uh, uh, events for the picnic. Mm-hmm. Everyone will move over to the fireworks show at George Bush Library. I think those start at 945. It's been a while since I've seen those fireworks. Uh, they're pretty remarkable from what I remember, but at, I usually have been out of town the last several uh, 4th of July, so I'm looking forward to seeing this one. Yes, they always do an excellent job with the fireworks. Uh, a couple of other things that are going on in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, at St. Anthony's, we're going to be having the Catholicism series part two. Yeah. Last year, we did the first five videos. This year, we're doing the second five. We're going to meet every Thursday starting next Thursday, not July 4th, the 11th. Mm-hmm. And we'll meet the consecutive uh, Thursdays until we've completed the video series. Um There'll be a meal. Series. Yes, uh, it was even on public television, yeah. and uh, uh, a really well done discussion of Catholicism. Yes. Uh, 
And uh, so invite everyone. Uh, it's not You don't have to be a St. Anthony parishioner uh, to come join us. But uh, the meal uh, starts at 5.30, and then we'll watch the video and then have a small group discussion mm-hmm. and a little wrap-up. And everybody hopefully should be out of there by around 8 o'clock. And we had non-Catholics attend last year. They were at my table. Um, very excited to see that. It, it's, a, it's a great video series. You don't have to be Catholic to be able to follow along because there's, there's just such richness in the videos because there's such richness in our faith. Yes, and uh, it provides insights to things that we take for granted as Catholics and might not understand as non-Catholics. Yeah. So um, I highly recommend it. Go ahead. Uh, In the same vein, uh, uh, St. Thomas will be doing the Pivotal Player series, also from the Catholicism series from Mm -hmm. uh, Bishop Barron. Uh, I've got the videos at home. They are also absolutely wonderful, uh, talking about people like uh, Blessed John Henry Newman, G.K. Chesterton, Michelangelo, and um, they'll be doing them um, July 18th, July 25th, and August 1st, Mm -hmm. and uh, you can either go to the 10 a.m. meeting or the 7 p.m. meeting in room 44 or 46, uh, 44 through 46, I guess they're opening up the rooms. but um, again, well done, excellent presentation, mm-hmm. and um, especially if you're not familiar with Blessed John Henry Newman, uh, he was an Anglican who converted to Catholicism, mm-hmm. and uh, the writings on his journey to Catholicism is absolutely wonderful. Okay, I've got a parish movie night at St. Jerome's in Waco. They're they're inviting people to come to their all parish. Movie Night, which is hosted by the Scripture Study Groups on Tuesday, July 9th. So that's coming up, 6.30 to 8.45. They're going to watch the movie Paul, the Apostle of Christ. So anyone that's a parishioner or not at St. Jerome's in Waco, go out July 9th at 6.30 to watch Paul, the Apostle of Christ. Wonderful. You also had mentioned that there were a couple of blood drives going on. Oh my gosh, each of our listening areas has a blood drive go on. So St. Jerome's again in Waco, their blood drives on the 21st. Uh, sponsored by the Knights of Columbus. It's in Brooks Hall from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. So you're going to also get a hamburger feast for all donors. Ooh, Yeah, that's wonderful. better than the T-shirt I got yesterday for donating. <laughs> donating. Uh, but Knights of Columbus at St. Jerome's on the 21st. And then in Palestine, they are having a uh, blood drive as well from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Sunday, July 14th at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church Activity Building and contact Ken Bartula for that. So July 14th at Sacred Heart in Palestine, blood drive. And then there's one more blood drive. Knights of Columbus are sponsoring one on the 21st here at St. Joseph's in Bryan, and that's going to be on the 21st, and that's also 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. So contact Charlie Ballou if you want to sign up there. Wonderful. Uh, One of the things to remember is that during the summer, blood donations go down because people have so Mm -hmm. many other things that they're busy with that uh, this is the time that they really have a need for blood donors. So if you're in the area and... uh, Definitely. Go give blood. Give life. And you had some great quotes that we wanted to read about the 4th... Not about the 4th of July, but since it is 4th of July tomorrow, 
Exactly, and yeah. this sort of segues into our second part of the show when we'll be talking with uh, Timothy Gordon about his book, Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. We need to remember that our country was founded on a basis of Christianity. So I have a quote here by mm -hmm. George Washington. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Hmm. And this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, this is by John Adams, and it's a good reminder for us. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So, uh, again, on the other side of our break, we'll be talking to Timothy Gordon about Catholic Republic, why America will perish without Rome. It's pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any phone calls, but see you on the other side. Stay tuned. It's a great interview. And we're back, and as promised, we're going to be speaking with Timothy Gordon, the author of Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Mr. Gordon is a uh, philosopher, a theologian. He has a degree in literature, history, philosophy, and law. Currently, he resides in Central California with his wife and five children, where he writes and teaches philosophy and theology. Timothy, how are you this morning? I am just dandy. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. We're also joined by Thaddeus Romanski, our station manager. Morning, Thaddeus. Morning, Deacon Mike. Morning, Tim. How are you on this uh, day before Thank July 4th, day before Independence Day? I'm excellent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the 4th of July and what it means today. Can we, can we be a little, a tad bit honest and say it, it might, on the day we're talking about this, it might not actually be July 3rd? Or do we have to keep that fiction going? No, we, we want to let people know that this is a, a pre-recorded pre interview. You're hearing it on July 3rd, but we recorded it uh, the week prior. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Hope that wasn't a spoiler. No, yeah, not at all. Gonna, I'll I'll probably make references uh, that are that are late June specific. Who knows? Maybe not. But yeah, I think it's it's really apropos that we're doing this interview for uh, July third, July fourth uh, holiday celebration. There's much to talk about relevant to the book. Yeah. Um. So Tim. First of all, though, give our listeners a sense of, before we get into the book, give them a little bit of background on who you are, especially your, you know, your faith journey. Were you raised Catholic? Were you a convert? Um, when did you become especially convicted about your, about your Catholic faith? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is always a difficult thing to do in a, in a you know, bounded time period, but, um, you know, I, I do better sometimes rather than others. I, for, for one thing, a lot of your listeners will know me, even if they don't know my book, from the uh, podcast uh, TNT with mm -hmm. Dr. Taylor Marshall. Mm -hmm. That's where I've, I've uh, 
come to be known by probably more people than the book. I'm sad to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I've talked about, I've talked about the, I've, I've talked about my, you know, morphology and faith on the show a couple times. I was, you know, technically speaking, to use the popular term, a cradle Catholic, grew up in the church in the 80s and, and early 90s, meaning that pretty much like all of my friends, uh, I mean, literally, I think almost down to the last one, I, I, I don't know if um, the eventual conversion that I had, you know, at almost, almost 30 years old, can even be called a reversion, you know, people, people say that. I mean, people in the 80s and 90s, I, I think the 70s too, though I'm not sure, were, were raised with such, such paltry, you know, wraiths of, of the trappings of faith, you know, sacramental trappings of faith, that I don't even know that the eventual conversion should be called a reversion, though, yes, technically, I, I went to Catholic, Catholic school and all that, like, like, Good, good Archbishop Fulton Sheen said this almost guaranteed in that time period that, you know, you, you wouldn't have the faith. So um, all that being what it was, I did always connect with the intellect, the Catholic intellectual tradition, which is really what my book Catholic Republic is about in the ethical and political sphere, obviously. Um, I always connected with it. I always was proud, even when I was in high school, college, had never really been convinced of, you know, the, the apodictic nature of the, the correctness of our faith. But I always did say clearly, you know, the Aristotelian and Thomistic tradition is the best. You study philosophy and it's just the, the, the clearest and the most correct. Um, on that basis, I, I studied philosophy in college and wanted to do a doctorate. So I went to the Pontifical Gregorian uh, University in Rome okay. and was studying there as a, as a young married guy uh, for, you know, to get into the doctorate program. I, I got in, was studying Aristotle and Thomas loved it. Uh, my, my wife and I uh, were really enjoying our time in Rome. She got pregnant out there, had our first uh, baby out in Rome, but it was an emergency, emergency birth. At yeah, and let me let me pause you right there, Tim. You're going to talk ab about something that has to do with uh, the heart here in a second. Again, we're talking with Timothy Gordon, author of the new book, Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Um, please continue. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, I mean, all along to... to, to, to you know, recapitulate that basically I was, I had been having a, uh, an ambling St. Augustine like um, decades long intellectual conversion. But, you know, still at that time, you know, I was in my late twenties when we went out there and um, was studying the faith, obviously, because I thought it was, was true in some capacity, but just still did not have supernatural faith. When my daughter was born, at Fauté Benefertelli Hospital in the middle of the Tiber Island in Rome, um, under exigent circumstances, needed a couple brain surgeries right away. My wife and I were so, so terrified that um, eventually I put aside the doctorate and we, we returned home about four months later. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the course of the next few years, I uh, was really beset with bad anxiety, not knowing what to do, you know, obviously I'd kind of put aside the career path to, to PhD in, in 
Aristotelianism and hopefully be an academic. So I'd, I'd gone to law school. So I now, you know, when my daughter would say two, three, four, found myself in law school, which was not really a path I had imagined, you know, just did it as a kind of extemporaneous, uh, you know, solution to an, a problem that was completely unforeseen in my daughter's house. Um, she's almost 11, by the way, and she's, she's doing great. But um, Wonderful. Yeah, the long and the short of it is my, my daughter, who does have, uh, you know, serious developmental delays and is in a wheelchair, uh, uh, during the, yeah, I think the second or third year, second year of, of law school, I was having a real hard time with anxiety attacks and was always worried. I'd been instructed, actually, by the Catholic novelist Michael O'Brien, you pray to the third person of the Trinity. And I tried it because I'd always wake up with anxiety attacks in the middle of the night. Prayed to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, for the first time in my life. I'd never been instructed to do so, you know, pray for particular charism and gift of the Spirit, like fortitude. And later that, later that much later that night, that was early 3 a.m., it was Holy Thursday of that year. And we went to Holy Thursday, uh, mass and it was at the consecration abby my daughter who was three at the time um was he did not really speak could barely say her name and it was not clear was was uh repeating holy spirit over and over again in a most strange chant-like fashion mm. so that was you know not 16 hours after i'd prayed to the holy spirit for the first time ever it was amazing you know? and this I mean, bowled you over yeah 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 it does I mean, it bowled me over, and it's it's um, it, it sustains. It, it was the last sort of kick in the pants toward supernatural faith. I mean, I'm not the kind. I always said I'm not the kind of person this happens to. You know, I'm an academic <clears throat> by nature, approach things intellectually, and so that that was really what I'd been praying for. And uh, it's it's an amazing thing how, like Mike Tyson says, right? It, you know. Anyone who has a plan will get punched in the mouth. Yeah, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And then you you, you do the best from there. So that's that's what happened to us in Rome. The book, on the other hand, is is a product of of sort of a combination of my time in Rome and then going on to law school. So, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Deacon Mike. We're talking with Timothy Gordon, the author of Catholic Republic: Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Before we get into more details on the book. I had one question. You were talking about an intellectual awakening to your faith because of the uh, intellectual history, but you also talked about the spiritual reawakening of your faith. Sure. Would you say yeah. that the spiritual reawakening was built on the platform of that intellectual reawakening or were they just sort of simultaneously? Certainly, yeah. I, I would say that that the uh, the faith is was predicated. The supernatural faith is predicated on the the reason, which you know, a lot of people actually forget this. The the um, sort of arch heresy of modernism, or you know, the synthesis of all heresies. Pius X says this: that the definition of modernism is the idea that one cannot know. Uh, the God, so that there is one God, a mono, you know, monotheistic uh, creator, through the reason alone. It's knowing about God that, that you know, you need faith, the properties of God and, and the salvific properties 
for which you need faith. But you can know that there is one God uh, in a kind of clinical sense. Uh, you, you need to be able to know. That's what the intellect is designed to do. The faith does not get you there. The faith gets you from knowing that there's one God. That's an intellectual proposition. Anything else is a superstition, like that Dr. Edward Faser calls atheism the last superstition. Polytheism, superstitious, so is atheism. One God is an intellectual property, but I was sort of frozen there. I, I think the way maybe St. Augustine was until the supernatural faith kicked in. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a certain sequence inscribed into nature. And it and seems that that it. sequence holds true from Augustine onward, because you start with Plato and Aristotle, and you can reason your way into there must be one perfect God if you're going to go there. But you're sort of stopped there if you don't right. have that supernatural awakening. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, Aristotle was still—we call him the blessed pagan, uh, Plato, too. Yeah, but he, he's still a pagan because he didn't have Christ, he didn't have the sacraments. It doesn't matter that he understood intellectually. It's, it's ridiculous to hold anything other than there must be one prime mover and unmoved mover. Right. Yeah, that, that didn't make him a religious man. And, of course, he would have been smart enough, arguably smartest man of all time, to have taken the uh, signposts in a post-Christian era if he'd lived, if he'd been blessed enough to live then. But, but without a doubt, that's true. Yeah, it doesn't make you a Christian just because you're a monotheist. You know, even the, uh, the Freemasons, the uh, sort of arch-nemeses of the Catholic Church, uh, affirm that there's one creator-architect, I forget whatever they call it. Which is a good segue into your book, because uh, Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome— emphasizes something that we normally don't hear about. Normally, our understanding is that, you know, the American government uh, system was built on a group of deists and perhaps some backsliding Protestants and some faithful Protestants, but very little mention about the Catholic intellectual tradition or anything like that. How did you come about this perspective? Uh, negatively at, at first. So, so the perspective, jumping from doctoral studies of philosophy to constitutional law studies, which is all I was interested in studying in law school, by the way. I, didn't, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I kind of wanted to keep being a grad student studying the law, which is what you do if you take every constitutional course there. They gave me a unique perspective, and I realized that there were these two halves of modernism. I mean, the modern world, which the church really avoids, is built on a two-sided coin. Um, if I could mix metaphors like a quiz and that. The two-sided coin of modernism is, on the one side, the Protestant Reformation, you know, which, which rejects the church, her sacraments, bishops, and the natural law from a Christian point of view, if there's such a thing. Um, and then the other half of the coin is the, you know, came about the next century after the Protestant Reformation. And it's the same rejection, really, uh, the rejection of the church, her sacraments, her um, hierarchs. Well, and, and in Luther's case, even, even reason itself, he rejected. It was that's, faith that's alone. Right. That's right. And, and uh, that's exactly right. And ultimately... 
well, you can you can go off in a hundred different directions, but but even the Enlightenment, which was supposed to have enshrined reason, you know, we were hearing about in the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. There, you know, they they actually the uh, Jacobins actually, you know, cut off the heads of a bunch of priests, took over Notre Dame, and enshrined the the, the pagan goddess of reason. But the funny thing about the Enlightenment is it ends up regarding reason the same way that that luther does and I, this is kind of central to the argument as, as a sort of uh you know set set reason in a lamp and it no more illumines than uh, filth set in a lamp or something like that one of these hyperbolic statements made by luther even though the enlightenment claimed to love reason it did not and here's why because the enlightenment like the reformation rejected the natural law and i i so this is kind of my first big clue um if America is the republic wired on, you know, these two sides, Reforma- you know, Protestant side, Enlightenment side, I, I just call it prod and light, because this is without a doubt whom it was being peopled by and whom it was being led by. Uh, I, I, I don't challenge that assumption. That's actually correct. What I challenge is the notion of something called a Protestant natural law which is essentially what you get in the Declaration, or an Enlightenment natural law, which you, I mean, this is the way the, the history books are written. You know, there's a bunch of Protestant kind of Enlightenment thinkers. Some were more 90-10 mixes of Protestant Enlightenment thought, and some were more like 10-90 mixes. But they were all kind of a mixture of these two church and natural law rejecting uh, worldviews. Well, it, it's really quite simple. I reduce the the real, true version of the natural law, the the, the Aristotelian Thomistic natural law, to three properties, and it's very very clear that these three prongs are each rejected, on one side by the Protestants and on others by the Enlightenment. And the interesting thing is, Protestantism, and maybe we can talk about those three properties in a second. But Protestantism, just so people out there are real clear is the grandparent of what today we call the religious right. The Reformation in America is, you know, what it means to be religious right. Um, Whereas the Enlightenment constitutes the grandparentage of what today is called the secular left. So we tend to think of them, and we're basically told that they're opposites, uh, Protestantism and the Enlightenment, but but they're not. And again, this is what I'm saying was, was my first big clue. So, so if you talk about, as I do in the book's introduction, um, and you unpack the ways that, that Protestants and the Enlightenment actually are kind of false opposites who actually share this rejection of the three prongs of the natural law, it becomes much more clear. Again, we're talking with Timothy Gordon, the author of The Catholic, uh, Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Okay, so, Tim, like you said, let's talk about those three attributes of what you call Catholic natural law, and I think in your book you define them as, one, that that nature is moral and free, two, that it's intelligible, three, that it's purposeful. So let's, let's discuss the moral and free aspect of nature. Perfect. Yeah, so it's the simple proposition— that is subscribed to by anyone who wants to do the Republican form of government, you know, small R that wants to live in a under self-representation, 
you have to believe that, you know, the, the first prong of natural law, that nature is a form of moral freedom. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone becomes good automatically, uh, that just, you know, with their freedom, they, they can spend it or misspend it. Um, but the main idea um, that I came to negatively about the Reformation and the Enlightenment is famously, both, you know, Luther, Calvin, you know, all their followers rejected man's free will. I, I mean, people know this. But simultaneously, they will, without batting an eye, read the Wall Street Journal's fifth centenary celebration of the Reformation back in 2017, which said that Luther was the greatest uh, advocate of human freedom or among the greatest advocates in the history of man. Well, that, that's ridiculous. So people, it's, they're, not, they're not putting these things together. You can't believe uh, in human liberty in the true sense of the term, which is necessary for doing republics. Um, from a Lutheran or a Calvinist point of view, you know, from a Protestant point of view, because they reject because of their view of sin, they reject free will. So they well, uh, uh, most of them tend to head towards this total predestination ideology that man truly isn't free. Right, right. They say, well, some of them will say, well, that's the Calvinist view. He, you know, Luther had a, a more moderate view. He actually didn't. Luther actually, you're exactly right. He debated an extended debate against Erasmus. You know, it, the one of his few texts that he didn't later, Luther was also kind of schizo with all due respect. He would flip-flop famously. One of the things he never flip-flopped on was his debate on the bondage of the human will, and he made a book out of it later from his debates with Erasmus. They all pretty much held that Human freedom, because of their exaggerated view of what the, the fall did to Adam and Eve and human nature, human nature is not free. Now, the Enlightenment, because um, it, this is a much simpler um, explanation, the Enlightenment rejects prong one of natural law and nature is free simply because we're, we're just kind of, you know, glorified meat machines. We're just super complex animals to Enlightenment thinkers, right? So we're not, we have freedom no more than a a lion in a cage we just you know we have a frontal lobe extra cortex so it, it we we think we have freedom for the enlightenment thinkers but we don't you know if you if you fall in a lion cage at the zoo you will be eaten if it's been 12 hours since the lion has been fed if it's been you know one hour then they'll probably just sleep it off and you, you'll go but it's the lion's not making a choice and human beings however of course from the natural law point of view we have moral decision-making capabilities. The Enlightenment thinkers deny this. They say we're just glorified lions. So that, that's prong one. Both sides, even though they think they're opposites, Protestants and Enlightenment thinkers, religious right and secular left, they're not. They both reject prong one. Okay, now what about next, um, the intelligibility of nature? And again, we're talking with Timothy Gordon, the author of Catholic Republic. For anyone to count as a, a natural law advocate, even though sometimes Protestants and Enlightenment thinkers claim to, the sort of the, the head notes, uh, they must believe in prong two as well, which is the idea that intelligent creatures, man, unlike all the animals, is capable of learning from and about his surroundings, from and about, um, which, which is, you know, which is the heart of what we call natural 
theology, right? Um, and the Protestants reject this quite simply because of sola scriptura. All, the only knowledge or what have you that can be come by for a Protestant is sola scriptura. You know, they can really be leaned on. Knowledge that can really be uh, depended upon is knowledge of the Bible. If it doesn't come from the Bible, you talk to a truly believing Protestant, you know, the one thing with 39,000 sects that they all believe in is sola scriptura. It's one of the one or two things they really all are united by. Well, if they, if they, if they really believe this, then only the Bible is really certain knowledge, mathematical principles or, or things like that cannot be counted on. So, so this rules out natural intelligibility for the Protestants and, and honest ones will tell you this, but we can't, you know, young earth theorists will tell you, we can't trust, you know, even geology or the fossil record. That might be a trick. Um, on the other side, the enlightenment thinkers, again, it, it's kind of, kind of the same as prong one, the enlightenment thinkers, because of naturalism and determinism, they just say, well, there is no such thing as meaning. Right. I mean, all, all, all a true enlightenment thinker believes in are the five senses um, reasoning, you know, using the data of the five senses is sort of too religious for them. Right. I mean, David Hume says I can watch a billiard ball be struck by a cue ball 10,000 times and I can never impute to the situation causation. All I can say is that 10,000 times in a row, the white ball struck the black ball. So so anything that's invisible or immaterial is basically religious and rejected as such for the enlightenment thinkers. So that's, that's problem two. They both reject it. If, if for opposite motivation. All right. And then finally that nature is purposeful. Yeah. And then, and then this follows just naturally from the second prong for both Protestants and enlightenment thinkers. I mean, Protestants might agree with us, to the extent that, that Jesus is the purpose of the, you know, the cre- you know, reunification with Jesus is the per- purpose of living here on earth for human beings. But because they rejected prong two, there's no natural way of reading creation to get us back to the creator. So even though they kind of half they want to half agree on this one, they can't because they rejected prong two. And then for, you know, for secularists, enlightenment secularists, Prong three, well, if, if all of the world is an accident, um, you know, not created, but just the world exploded or whatnot, um, then there's no meaning. You can only talk about meaning from the point of view of uh, design or teleology system. And since they reject that, they reject prong three as well. So the, the point is, these are not arbitrary three properties of natural law. This is when you look at the natural law tradition that even pre-existed the church, what they got right in it, mainly guys like Aristotle, but Homer, Hesiod, Plato, some of the Pythagoreans even understood it before Aristotle. But Aristotle is the best pre-Christian natural law theorist, which is why Thomas Aquinas really incorporated Aristotle. These are all the properties that they all pretty much had, and the properties were sharpened and christened within the Catholic tradition. This three-prong analysis is what you can use to really cut uh, the, the wheat from the shaft and, and show that even though sometimes Luther affirmed the natural laws, certain enlightenment thinkers like John Locke affirmed it. They're really just being rhetorical because they knew they needed to, at least in name, 
affirm it to, to do the Republican form of government. But you can only do it from the Catholic tradition. So right away I knew there was some some sort of fly in the ointment. So, again, we're talking with Timothy Gordon, the author of Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome, which brings us to the second part of that title of the book, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Why do you say that the rejection of those three principles are dangerous for the continuation of our republic? Well, to give an example, um, you know, the, the three most commonly enumerated natural rights, life, liberty, and property, which, again, come, come from the Catholic tradition far before, you know, Locke and, and um, the English Whigs, who the American uh, revolutionaries were reading, stumbled upon them. Um, the, you know, life, liberty, and property are, are correct, uh, is, a, is a correct summation of really the only things were guaranteed by God. Um, but when you attempt to conceive of life, liberty, property, natural rights themselves from a low fidelity, self-contradicting Protestant or Enlightenment point of view, right? When you try to do natural rights from a fake natural law perspective, you're going to get pseudo natural rights, a, a, a low enough, a sufficiently garbled understanding of, say, let's take liberty. This is kind of the easiest one. Liberty, yeah, they, they, they got the list right. It's life and liberty and property when you're reading Locke or Algernon Sidney, the way Thomas Jefferson was. So they get the list right. That's something. That counts for something, which is why I say there's hope for America. But, but when you have a poor understanding of the natural law, then you're going to conceive of, again, just one example. There are many. Um, the second natural uh, right, liberty, as not ordered freedom, freedom ordered at the good, which is the definition of liberty, but as a kind of non-ordered freedom or freedom for its own sake. It, 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 can, it can be a very subtle difference. It's an easy pitfall, right? But that's what ended up getting understood uh, in, in America, particularly in American case law, and particularly as things went along. When you have a bunch of Protestant guys and secular Enlightenment guys like Jefferson or Tom Paine, saying liberty, 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 um, they were, bear in mind, they were reading guys like Algernon Sidney, who were secretly reading Catholics like Robert Bellarmine, Thomas Aquinas, Suarez, but they weren't owning up to it in their citations page. So they could use the same term, liberty, the best that can be understood from it in a Protestant, Enlightenment, secularist way is license. Um, and the only people who might understand it in the full sense of the term are the Catholics. I mean, there are 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Only one of them was a Catholic, Charles Carroll of Ch Carrollton. And so I, 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 don't, I don't know exactly what was going on in his head. But we could say with, with good reason, we can say with good, um, with sufficient evidence that, that Charles Carroll was capable of understanding liberty in its full sense. And we've seen today the degradation of liberty into full-on license, even if maybe the original framers had more virtue, even as Protestant Enlightenment thinkers. It's fully descended now to the point where, you know, a man thinks he can be a woman, and this is the ultimate conception of liberty. That, that's not. So 
my ultimate point, I was just using one example. The ultimate point is when you have imperfect copies of all of the goodies of the natural law, you know, I, I go through six goodies in my six chapters, you know, natural rights, subsidiarity, virtue ethics. These are the first three chapters. They will be understood, but very imperfectly, and they will degrade. They will corrode faster than they ordinarily would. Like the virtues always corrode in republics, which is why you always need new revolutions by the virtuous. But they will corrode at a, you know, a, a radioactive rate when you have a, a such a low fidelity Protestant Enlightenment understanding of these Catholic precepts. Again, listening to you, uh, especially this talk about liberty and uh, the importance of the Catholic intellectual tradition in maintaining an understanding of how that is to uh, be understood, the danger we look at right now in this country is we have an emotional emphasis on liberty without the intellectual properties underpinning it to remind us that if we don't understand that there is an absolute good, liberty becomes meaningless because right. liberty ultimately becomes whatever I want to do. Right. Yeah, Aristotle talks about um, terms called prosenequivocals where we can be saying the same term and it might be based on, there might be two different variant understandings of it in two different listeners they might share one aspect that's the same. Like everyone gets, all Americans, Catholics, Protestants, secularists, understand something common in liberty, right? They get that it has something to do with freedom, you know, not being compelled by an external force. But only the Catholic, unlike the Protestant or the uh, you know, Enlightenment thinker, and only good Catholics, you know, who, who, who know the intellectual tradition, which is too small a portion, understand that that liberty is a kind of freedom there's another qualifier it's a freedom only to do our best job with our rightly formed conscience to pursue the good so you can't just do whatever you want that's not what liberty means um whereas the protestants and the enlightenment thinkers on their basis of and again this is just one example the book shows how it works for all of the goodies of republicanism but in this within this example uh, Protestants and Enlightenment thinkers will always misunderstand liberty because they have a faulty understanding of the human well. They see it as fixed or non-free, uh, both Protestants and Enlightenment thinkers. And you see it in the case law, which I also walk through. The kind of it, it's a um, it's a slow degradation. It's sped up in the you know really in the 1940s in America. It already it had already degraded quite a bit in the century before that. But it real things got really out of hand in the case law in the middle twentieth century, well before the nineteen sixties. Uh, Tim, we're talking with with Timothy Gordon, author of Catholic Republic: Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Um, you're you're leveling a lot of critiques at at the American exper experiment, and we're we're our listeners are hearing this on the day before July fourth. What would you say to a critic who would say uh, you're not proud of being an American? Well, I actually am. Um, see, I, I'm believe it or not, it's kind of hilarious. I'm I'm the moderate. I'm not used to being called a moderate, but um, as an extreme, you know, Catholic conservative. But there's this big debate. Maybe you've heard of it between um, 
you know, National Review's David French. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, group, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A certain group of, uh, of uh, you know, mostly Catholic conservatives. You know, David French is a kind of conservative. He's what's called the classical liberal, typical American guy that loves John Locke, who we were just talking about. Um, on the one hand, you got the classical liberals like French, and then you have a group of mostly Catholic professors calling themselves post-liberals. And ironically, none of these really involve leftists because leftists are what we would call neoliberals. But the debate within conservatism now, it's rather hot and it's rather prominent, is between the post-liberals and the classical liberals. I'm actually in between them, and explicating how I fit between them is, I think, a great explication of how I'm I'm quite the patriot. Um, So the the post-liberals say, look, we, we tried freedom. And they're actually falling into the same pitfall. And we have about ten uh, minutes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but they're 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 actually in between. You know, they they make the same pitfall. You know, characterizing liberty as license as the Protestants and the classical liberals. Um, more or less, the post liberals say, "Look, small government doesn't work. We thought small government went hand in hand with Christian values, and we we no longer think after look how long America's gone." You know, look at look at drag queen reading hour in, in public libraries across the country. This means that there was some germ in the American exper- experiment in the American experience that was fated to go wrong all along. And they point out a bunch of good premises for this conclusion, but the conclusion is flat wrong. Um, the consti- the American Constitution ends up it, it has its own solution buried in it. And I I'm proud to be an American because the American Constitution is the greatest, straight out, the greatest political science document ever created. It's mostly ignored now because of progressives, starting with like Woodrow Wilson, starting really at the Civil War. But um, but the classical liberals are wrong in so, and, and they are typically known as the better patriots among uh, America's 2019 conservatives. But they are wrong insofar as they're still holding up guys like John Locke. I say in between them. The only way you can hold up John Locke is by saying, look, he's a pro- he's the best instance of a Protestant Enlightenment thinker whose metaphysics, both Protestant and Enlightenment, rejected natural law, and yet John Locke's politics was quite good. Uh, the politics are supposed to just be the bottom line. Um, what you've already proven exists metaphysically, the top line in, in philosophy. Um, John Locke rejects it metaphysically, but then on the bottom line, holds it up, holds it out um, politically. The, the idea of liberty, rights, limited government, subsidiarity, things like that. Well, I say, yeah, the post-liberals are right uh, when they argue against the classical liberals that, that you can't do any of this stuff. They're basically saying what I'm saying. You can't do what you want republicanism to do uh, from a Protestant or Enlightenment perspective. What the post-liberals miss is that there was enough plagiarized Catholic intellectual traditions genius is enough that, that squeezed into the, the American documents and the American philosophy at the beginning, even though it was plagiarized, to make do if we now announce that these principles are Catholic, not Protestant or Enlightenment. Based on what you were just talking about, uh, a quote by John Adams comes to mind. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly uh, inadequate to the government of any other. 
What are the right. problems we run into when people talk about that, you know, um, the country was bound to devolve into this? But that's uh, yeah. only because we have lost sight of that understanding of an objective good. Right. It's a cultural problem. See, this is, this is what I say to you. I was uh, debating uh, Dr. Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame earlier in the week. And this is precisely what I said. I, I think I produced this Adams quote or, or a, or a uh, Charles Carroll quote, which is almost identical. And I said, look, the founders got it. Now, John Adams was one of the more Protestant, less Enlightenment-leaning uh, founders. So he was a faithful Protestant. But he didn't understand that Protestantism is a rejection not only of human liberty, but also of the possibility of virtue. You know, the, the, the Protestant view of sin requires basically something like total depravity, even if you're not a Calvinist. Um, so, yes, this is true. What, the, what, what Adams meant and what, what Charles Carroll meant is that it doesn't matter how ingenious a, a political document you set before a bunch of brigands, you know, the sluggards. Uh, if, if they're not virtuous, then they will look at that virtuous document, which should conduce to good government, and they will hate it, right? Sort of like putting a bad person in heaven. They, they won't even enjoy their time, like Archbishop Sheen always said. So um, that's basically the problem. I think Adams got that, but he didn't get the principle that, well, but, but you don't understand why virtue can't be possible in a Protestant Enlightenment world. Um, again, every both parties in conservatism today still miss this big point. The post-liberals get that virtue is necessary, but they don't understand that what's gone wrong in America is mostly the fault of the culture, not the politics. We, we have this great constitution. Now, it's imperfect. In the book, I talk about some ways that it could have been better. Um, could have been slightly less centrally wired to the Fed, but th that doesn't matter. The point is the Constitution's good enough. It's crypto-Catholic enough to make do. It's got enough nuggets of truth in it to make do. But really the problem is, culturally speaking, people went way off the track. And I say that you know, with a secularized form of Christianity, which Protestantism really is, this will always happen. It's the fault of the culture. The post-liberals don't get that. They think it's all governmental uh, miswiring. Yes, and I would add that uh, one of the problems is that if you dismiss the Catholic viewpoint that we are capable of good moral actions and good moral choices rather than that we're ultimately depraved and we have no choice, then the whole system of government falls down because you have to be able to make good moral choices and be willing to do so. That's right. That's exactly, that's perfectly said. Yeah, Adams got that, but he didn't get that his religion kept him from fully realizing the, all of the, the, the grandiloquence and the beauty of that claim. But he's right. You need, you need a good government. You need the right constitution but you also need a virtuous people to live it out and to appreciate it. Now, we're running out of time here, so your book is aimed at the American public. What do you want them to get out yes. of this? 
What I want them to understand is that the American politics and the American cultural precepts that they've always embraced, at least at least conservatives, right? And I include Protestants and secular conservatives. They they're they're correct, but they're not. They're only fully correct when understood from the proper pedigree, the proper intellectual tradition. Because there's only one which cultivates them. This winds up being a form of backdoor apologetics, because like I think Peter Kreeft says, we've we've absolutized our politics and we've relativized our religion. So this is the best way to prove somebody, you know, good Protestant or secular American conservatives believe in liberty, believe in virtue ethics. They just need to be shown that their own either Protestantism or secularism from a right wing point of view cannot sustain itself. The only proper internally consistent worldview that sustains the, the, the cultural and the political precepts they believe in is the Roman Catholic intellectual tradition. It's just a fact, and I, I, I think I show it rather convincingly in the book. Where would we get a copy of this book? So you could go to uh, sophiainstitute.com. Sophia Press gave it a second run. Um, you know, the book was published on dangerous books before. So you can go to sophiainstitute.com. That's, I think, best for them. Or you can go to Amazon. Or your local bookseller, uh, you know, whether Barnes and Noble or a Catholic bookseller, uh, you can will have it, or you can order it there as well. Again, we were talking to uh, Timothy Gordon, the author of Catholic Republic: Why America Will Perish Without Rome. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, fascinating book, and I think that uh, it. I encourage everyone to read it because it does make us think of how vital it is to understand the world as the people that wrote the documents that started this country and in order to know how we're going to keep it going the way it was intended to. Again, thank you very yeah. much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Have Appreciate a, have it, a Tim. Great 4th of July. Well, thank you. You also, and thank you all for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talent, and treasure with God, always round up. Shake off, and talking.